is the only bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, and we're committed to the success of women entrepreneurs and majority women-owned companies across Canada. As a proud partner of the Thrive Podcast, we're here to help you start, grow, or scale your business. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women today. Scotiabank is proud to co-present the Thrive Podcast for Women Entrepreneurs. Through the Scotiabank Women Initiative, Scotiabank aims to help advance women-led businesses with access to capital, education, and mentorship. To learn more, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. Diversify. Don't just put all your eggs in one export market. Think about what other export markets you could do well at, and EDC will help you figure that out. With Export Development Canada, doing business abroad doesn't need to be risky. We take on the risks so you can think bigger and grow confidently. EDC, take on the world. listening to the Thrive Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, where we help women entrepreneurs start and build thriving businesses. On the Thrive Podcast, we connect you with leading experts, entrepreneurs, and organizations that provide capital, mentorship, training, tools, and other support to help you make your vision a reality even faster. This podcast is presented in partnership with Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcasts to subscribe to the Thrive community. And subscribe to listen to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. Finally, we'd love for you to rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes for the chance to have it read on air. We want these shows to impact as many people as possible, and your reviews will help us get there. I'm your host, Gomal Minhas, founder of CoreSpace, your one-stop shop for all things work, wellness, and impact. Visit kaur.space to find out more. I'm also the producer of Dream Girl, the documentary film showcasing the lives of inspiring and ambitious female entrepreneurs that we premiered at the Obama White House. I'm so happy to be here today. Welcome to the show. This is Mallory Brody, co-founder and CEO of Bridget, a solutions platform made to improve projects in the construction industry. Mallory Brody has almost 10 years of entrepreneurial experience and holds an honors degree from the Richard Ivey School of Business. With Bridget's leading solutions, Bridget Bench and Bridget Field, these products have had a remarkable impact on the way construction projects are happening today. Providing project managers with clean and organized insights of their teams, Bridget has allowed for industry players to move away from scattered spreadsheets and project plans and reap the benefits of an easy-to-use mobile app. Working alongside product developers, marketers, and customer experience experts, Mallory and her team continue to build and strengthen this modern approach to project planning and completion. Bridget Solutions is used by national companies like Moss Construction Management, Benson Industries, and more, who believe that adopting technology brings new value, productivity, and efficiencies to their projects. In 2015, Mallory received the top prize at the Google Demo Day. 
Mallory has been named Tech Vibes Entrepreneur of the Year and is featured in Mars Discovery District's Portraits of Innovation. Mallory has also been recognized by Forbes as a top 30 under 30 in the manufacturing and industry sector. Most recently, along with her co-founder, Lauren Lake, the two have won Startup Canada's Ontario Women Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Welcome to the show, Mallory. Thanks so much for having me. I am so curious as to what inspired you to get into the construction industry in the first place. What was that initial impetus for you? Bridget had a pretty interesting beginning in that both my business partner, Lauren, and I did not know each other before starting the business, but both independently came from uh, construction families. So out of fourth year university, we were both at Western. She was in civil engineering. I was in the business school. And we both applied to this program called The Next 36, where they selected 36 people from across the country as finalists and then matched all of them up onto 12 teams of three people. Um, And so Lauren and I were on a team together. And that very first night of this incubator program, they gave us 12 hours to come up with an initial business idea that we had to pitch to 300 people the next morning. So we had a pretty big task ahead of us. Yeah. So it was that first night that Lauren mentioned that she was a civil engineer. She had worked on site across the U.S. in about 13 different states um, with her uncle's company, Vector Corrosion Technologies. And I brought up that my family had also been in the construction industry with a demolition business based out of Ottawa. Um, so we, we connected on that pretty quickly and just put our heads together, came up with the name Bridget that night, uh, decided to focus on the construction industry, and then pitched the initial concept the next day to a, to a room full of Toronto business people. That's wild. Can you talk, walk us through what that pitch experience was like that day? It was definitely pretty intimidating. However, I must say it was uh, only the second scariest pitch I had done um, since right before starting the next 36, I was running an online art gallery and had to pitch to Kevin O'Leary a couple weeks before wow. on the Western campus. Yeah. So he had told me I was going to starve to death with that, uh, <laughs> that first business idea I had. So as, as uh, I think, nervous we were to present to a room with lots of people, it was still um, not the scariest pitch of the month. Well, I that would be definitely quite the feedback to receive from Kevin O'Leary himself. But I'm sure if he were to see what happened with your second, your next venture, Bridget, he would be really impressed. Um, what was the response in the room that day when you guys initially pitched this? Like, how did you guys end up knowing that this there was a product market fit and that this would be successful. Everyone in the room was really excited about the overall opportunity that the construction industry would potentially have just given the pure size of the construction industry. But there was one major hesitation that was brought up um, as a point of feedback, which was really just would on-site construction teams adopt technology? That was the, the big question mark that we had leaving that first weekend. And we didn't take that as you know a sign that we should drop the idea and move on to another industry or another idea. We decided that we would, as soon as we got back to London, go to different construction sites and ask the teams directly um, rather than just making our own assumptions or hearing what these various investors had to say. And that's exactly what we did. It was a new construction project on the Western campus. It was the new Ivy building um, that a company Ellis Dawn was working on. And that was one of our very first research projects and they gave us a ton of feedback and talked about uh, the fact that they did actually want to use technology on site, but there hadn't been many mobile applications that were built. A lot of them were web-based. 
and it wasn't very easy to carry around a laptop um, on a job site, but a smartphone is, is an ideal way to use a new, a new tech solution. So when you guys were going through building the MVP and bringing it to, um, to the market or to you know small sample sizes in the beginning, what was that iterative process like in product development? And how is that like uh, informed how you guys are developing products now? Definitely our initial intuition was to get as much user feedback as we could before actually writing a line of code. Um, and part of that was driven by the fact that we actually didn't have a software engineer on our team. So we had a civil engineer and then a business grad, um, but neither of us knew how to code. So that was going to be an expense for the company. We were going to have to hire someone to do that initial development work. So we were pretty set on getting the idea right and making sure that we have product market fit again before making that investment. So some of the different things we did, so one was just do a ton of interviews. So we interviewed about 500 um, different construction professionals in various parts of the industry um, to narrow down on what the actual problem we'd be solving was. Then we did our own sketches. Um, so just you know, basic wireframes, pen and paper, using PowerPoint or another software called Balsamic um, to get those initial concepts together, which we got feedback on. Then we'd take um, some of the concepts from those wireframes and find apps that were already in existence. And maybe they weren't the full idea that we had, but they had some of the same features. So we would get our potential customers to test those out. Um, then we got letters of interest signed to make it more official that they weren't just being nice to us, but they actually were interested. Uh, and then more formal sales agreements. And once we had all of that, only then did we actually start developing software. So there was a lot of steps we went through to make sure that this was really an opportunity uh, before spending a lot of money to, to build the technology. And when you guys were initially starting up, what did your startup financing look like? Was it friends and family? Was it through Next36 and the pitch competition? How did you... Um where did that startup capital initially come from? Next36 started all of the companies off with $5,000. And that seemed like so much money at the time. So we were really excited about that. And then we essentially had to continue hitting milestones in the business to get additional capital. So because we, we did hit all those milestones throughout that program, we got a total of $90,000 from the program. Um, over the period of nine months, which was enough to hire some Waterloo co-op students to help us build the first version of the software. And then after that, we did our first angel round of financing, who was um, a little bit friends and family, but mostly angel investors in the Toronto and Waterloo tech ecosystem. If It sounds like Next36 was really the ultimate boot camp for, to build this startup. Would you have like Obviously, you wouldn't have met Lauren without it. What it, would you give uh, it as? Would you recommend it to those listeners who might be listening and being like, "This sounds like something that could be of interest to me." I think definitely, if it's your first company, there's just so many unknown unknowns, and you just you don't even know what questions to ask. And if I take the first company, I tried to start um, and look at all of the mistakes I made. I think a lot of them. Uh, I could have I could have prevented them from happening had I been part of some sort of incubator program. Um, so even the fact that I didn't even know it was even within the realm of possibility that I could get investors for my company, like that was just crazy to me. I thought I for sure would have to have you know enough revenue um, to pay my own salary and to grow a team very slowly. Um, and there was no idea of like a, taking a seed round of financing or something like that. So that's something that 
once you're part of that ecosystem becomes very obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me. And I don't think it would have been obvious uh, to Lauren or myself had we not been part of that program, um, especially just being in, you know, fourth year university and not even having worked really before um, in a full time uh, job. I think that that is such an example of just like, had that resource not been available, who knows what the next right steps would have looked like for you at that time. And I'm curious that that round of pitching angels, was it markedly different from that pitch in front of hundreds of people and that initial Kevin O'Leary pitch? <laughs> uh, I, I think so, because we had so much confidence in our idea by the time we went to pitch those angel investors, because we had done, done so much research. And that was another thing that it was partly intuition that Lauren and I felt like we had to go out into the field to validate this idea before uh, spending money and building something. Um, but I think the other forcing function was the fact that we didn't have a software engineer on our team. So we couldn't just whip something up the second we thought we were onto something. So it really extended the amount of time we had to spend in the market and gave us a lot of conviction over what we were pitching um, versus the initial idea I had. I was fully in school probably talked to, you know, 10 or 20 people, but then just dove into it because no uh, technical product was required. So just just never validated the idea to the extent that we we definitely did during the next 36. I am I went through a similar experience with our MVP with my company. We, we kind of just put it to market without getting that data at the outset. And right now we're about to go into a design sprint um, with a lot more data from our end user. And it's a total game changer because... I feel like we can sometimes as owner operators or founders want to operate in silos and feel like our team or we might have all the insights we need, but the market is actually who your end user is, who is going to purchase the product. So can you speak more to the importance of that data data accumulation and getting that information from the market? Yeah, I think it's, it's really easy to fall in love with your own idea when you're starting a company. And I think you can stay in love with it if you never leave your office uh, or your basement or wherever it is that you're starting the company. And so getting in the habit of going out um, to the customers on day one and just asking them what their problems are as opposed to just going in with a solution that you've come up with, I think is a really great way to get a business off the ground. And it sort of ties into this idea that everyone thinks that there's going to be this aha moment uh, where they come up with this brilliant business idea and then they're going to make you know, tons of money and have a massive company and all of that. And that is possibly the experience for some, but was definitely not the experience for Lauren or myself. It was very much about going out into the field every day, learning more, finding out more details about the problems that um, the construction teams were having in their day-to-day, iterating on a solution and just really taking the company day by day and making sure that we were very diligent in getting that feedback um, as opposed to, yeah, just kind of dreaming up some idea in our office and hoping it hits. And I think that can work better for maybe more consumer-type businesses, but definitely in B2B, you have to be solving a real problem. And now when you guys look at product enhancement and making the system better for your end user, how do you guys still incorporate this market research into your product design uh, aspect of things? Yeah, so there's definitely a couple different inputs that we look at when we're um, deciding what the product product roadmap is going to look like. The first is coming from our sales team. So they are talking to a lot of prospects. Some of those uh, turn into deals. Some of them don't. For the ones that don't, really understanding why a customer uh, didn't move forward and buy the product. And that's one of the inputs that our product team looks at. The second is for active customers. Um, so 
if there's some sort of usability challenge that they're having or there's something that they wish they had in the product, those are conversations that our product team will run as well that really come through our customer success team. Um, the third thing is uh, all of the data that we collect on the back end. So our product, can, our product team can really analyze what features are being used, which features are not being used, and that can enhance our product. Um, and then the last is doing more long-term strategic research to figure out, you know, what do we need to be doing 18 months from now to stay um, ahead of the market or uncover new opportunities. And that's a lot closer to the initial research we did, which you're going in with no specific solution, but just looking to hear more about some of the challenges that exist within the industry. Mm, it's really being problem focused. Like how do we really dive into this problem set and know that we have it outlined and, and figured and then looking at those solutions as potential opportunities for the product? Totally. So you guys officially launched Bridget back in 2014. So that's about five years of this company existing um, off that whim on that one night conversation between you and Lauren at Next36. What does it feel like when you look back? Is it surreal to, to realize that you've been building this for five years? It definitely does feel surreal. Lauren and I do reflect on that uh, pretty frequently. And I think in the beginning, it was really just total survival mode and we really had no expectation as to whether the company was going to be around for two more weeks, two more months, two more years. Um, so it felt, we just felt very uncertain about how it was going to go, even though we were putting a lot of work into it. Um, and now looking back, it's pretty interesting that we're at this point that we can actually be thinking a lot longer term. So we're, we're doing research right now that's going to actually only impact the company, you know, two years from now or five years from now. And so it's, it's really nice to have that foundation where we can be looking a lot further ahead. Uh, but we're definitely both very proud of, of how far the company's come and definitely wouldn't have been able to do it without the amazing team that we've been able to bring on that are really supportive and excited of the, the overall vision. And when you do look back at that early startup period, obviously when we come out of university, like there's a different gusto and energy level we have at that early 20 phase. But would you have like, get, what advice would you give to your early startup self in terms of overall taking care of your wellness and, and yourself in that process of starting up? Definitely think that it's important for founders to keep in mind that it's, it's an endurance race um, and it's not a sprint. And I think you have to sprint early on uh, just because you don't really know how sustainable the company is going to be. But as soon as you you cross that threshold of it being a more sustainable business, you have capital, you have uh, team members, all of that, you really have to pace yourself because lots of these tech companies, um, you know, they're in existence for, say, 12 years potentially before they get acquired or sometimes they just grow independently and they never get acquired. Um, and I think if you just are constantly burning the midnight oil, then it's actually um, the worst thing you can do. And I think there's a huge magnifying effect of any, anything that the founder or the CEO shows the team, they will take, you know, at 10 X what the reality might be. So if I look upset one day or if I look stressed one day, the team's going to think something epic, epically wrong is happening and the, the reverse of that. But that's why I think it's, you know, extra important for um, the founders to really be taking care of themselves because otherwise the entire team suffers for sure. And for you and for your own personalization, what does that look like to take care of yourself? 
I think spending time with a lot of people that are outside of the tech world um, is definitely helpful just to make sure that you're not, you know, only only being around people with, you know, a single perspective or a single goal when it comes to their um, careers or just life. So um, really keeping in touch with people outside of the overall tech world. Um, I love cooking. So that's something that I really enjoy doing on weekends, just having friends over and cooking. Um, exercise is something that not everyone loves, but I think we should all do. So keeping, um, you know, a, a good schedule around that, I think is really important, but it's definitely different for, for everyone. Um, Lauren's a really amazing athlete, so she would uh, do like a lot of biking and running and did an Iron Man, so she's an Iron Woman, I guess. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely different for everyone, but making sure that you're making time for things outside of work, for sure. And that can be the hardest thing for, for founders. Um, I know that I've had that experience myself, but um, were there any key mentors or, or pieces of advice that you got early on that kind of stuck with you through this entrepreneurial journey? I think one of the, the biggest things was um, really just hearing from some of our investors that had run companies before that this idea that it is an endurance race and it, it can take a long time. And definitely when your team gets bigger, you need to realize that you're only one of many on the team. So right now our team's 50 people. And so even if I were to spend, you know, 18 hours a day working away, the overall impact um, to the company is actually not going to be that big. It's really more about making sure that everyone is totally clear on what the next three or six or 12 months look like. They understand what the top goals are for the company. And that's a way better use of time than me trying to just, you know, email a couple more prospects uh, that we might be able to get on our product or something like that. So I think you just need to reassess what your role is pretty frequently um, and make sure that you're actually adding value in a way that makes the most sense for the company and the stage that it's at. But definitely the, the idea that it's a long-term thing and it's not something that you can, um, you know, just work really hard at for a year and expect to see all of the result, results that you planned on it. It, t- it definitely takes time. And when it comes to the industry that you're in, um, it is a traditionally or stereotypically male-dominated industry. Coming in with to, like with a tech product that is a huge innovation, but also being women in this field, was there any pushback or experiences that you had that you could share with our listeners about um, about being a woman in the construction space? Lauren and I definitely get asked this question a lot, and um, I think everyone's always really happy to hear that there there truly haven't been really any situations at all um, with the construction industry where we've received that pushback. I think the construction industry has very much realized that they are um, in a male-dominated industry and are very much trying to be open to being as inclusive as possible, and I think they very much are. I don't think there's as much interest coming from the female side to be in the construction industry, but I definitely don't feel like people would um, get this sense that there's not a place for them. So there's lots of just different programs and initiatives that they run. I remember I was at one construction company in LA um, and they had um, a room for new mothers um, and all of that. And I haven't seen that at any tech companies. Uh, I was at this construction company. So I thought that was really impressive. And, and we've definitely just had a great experience in the construction industry overall. I feel like it could be part of the construction industry sees trends before they're even happening within off office spaces or different industries because they're building the buildings. So it's just, I feel like, a, a force of 
the nature of the industry to remain innovative and open-minded in this way. So that is absolutely reassuring to hear. Even when I was asking it, I was like, I just had a feeling that it wasn't the case, but I, the impetus was there just to, to know. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, when it comes to the actual use of the product in the field, were there any examples or like case studies where you were like, this is a major win and it was a moment for you in the company where you're like, this is going to work. Like, look at how effective this has been for, for X uh, client. I think the thing that really gets us excited is when we're uh, looking at the data for our field solutions product and based on the research, we knew that the volume in which they'd be using the product was pretty high. So it wasn't as though they'd be adding hundred tasks to a large scale condo building. We knew it was going to be in the thousands, but when we actually see that there's been 40,000 punch items or tasks added to our app um, by, you know, a few different users and they're using all the power features to make sure that that happens really efficiently and quickly. And then you see the subcontractors actually following up on those items. So just the full workflow working as it should to the volume that is happening on site has been really awesome for us to see. Um, and Lauren and I definitely look back and we're like, wow, like we just, we went out on site and we asked them these questions and we figured out what the challenges were and then we built a product and now they're literally logging 40,000 items on the app. And that's just a pretty awesome thing to, to see. And it's, it's not like it's this like miraculous number necessarily that guides us, but it's just like the pure usage and consistent usage that gets us really excited and we just want to figure out um, every day how we can do that better and better with that product and with our new product as well. So when it comes to the future of the industry and you're seeing how tech has been adopted on work sites, what's your what's your hope for the future adoption of technology in other parts of the construction industry or other spaces, company or industries that you guys might be wanting to um, look into in the future? A lot of the the feedback we've heard from different um, investor groups, not even our investors, but just people we run into at conferences and that sort of thing, um, we've heard a lot of comments that they feel that it's becoming overly saturated when it comes to technology solutions in the construction industry. And those are all people that are outside of the construction industry, just to be clear, more on the financial side. And that is always so interesting, I think, for our company and all of the other construction software companies out there to hear because being on the ground level, we know just how much more there is potential for um, when it comes to productivity improvements on on construction sites and in the industry overall. And I truly think we're just scratching the surface. So right now in construction, we're still not even at the point where all of their workflows are digital. And that's step one. And then step two is you have all the data from the collection now that they've had these tech solutions to use for their different workflows. And then there's far more advanced analytics and improvements that you could, um, you could bring to the industry. And so it's so interesting to hear that, you know, Oh, there's 10 construction software companies in all of North America and it's saturated. And I think it's something that all of the, all of those companies would just sort of giggle at because we all know, how many exciting things I think are going to be brought to the industry and built in partnership with the industry over the next number of years. That's so interesting because it is, it's like, there's so much space for innovation. If you look at 10 technology companies in the construction space, how many construction companies are there in North America? <laughs> so that dilution isn't actually isn't actually true. But I'm curious to know if your uh, family's company and Lauren's family's company are also adopting 
your guys's technology in their work? So Lauren's family's company, they were one of our initial beta testers. Um, and so they've, they've used our field solutions product. We need to get them on the new product one of these days, though, Bridge of Bench. Um, and my grandfather's construction company um, closed down when he retired. So there's no one for us to get on board at his company anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of your families both being so immersed in the construction space, um, they must have been very proud of you guys to see this be a solution the next generation came up with in that industry. Yeah, I think they definitely were excited that, you know, we were still in the industry, but taking our own uh, modern twist to it all. So they were definitely really excited to answer all of the different questions we had that very first night. I remember uh, we called a bunch of people from Lauren's family out in Winnipeg and they were they were like, what are you two up to? Um, <laughs> so now for them to look back, they, they were definitely a very important piece of those, those early days of, of Bridget. That's absolutely incredible. I love that story as well of like the intergenerational innovation. Um, so my last question for all my guests on the show is, what advice do you have for our listeners so that they can thrive in their lives and in their business? I think in terms of business, um, if you're starting a business, I think it's really important, um, especially if it's in tech and, you know, those tech companies typically tend to have higher growth, that you really reassess what your role in the company is at least every three months um, and make sure that you're focused on the thing that's going to be next, uh, the next most important thing for the growth of your company. And I think people um, either forget to delegate or they don't necessarily prioritize the right work um, to sustain and grow their company. So I think just really being self-aware and reassessing um, on a consistent basis is important for those leaders. And then personal, I think it's just making sure that you always have something to go to outside of your business. Um, even for founders that work as hard as they possibly can, sometimes those businesses fail. And I think there's often the feeling of, um, you know, not having a lot outside of that company when it fails. And I think it's just always really important to keep other hobbies and relationships up um, even during those times when you're you're just getting a new company off the ground. Thank you so much for sharing uh, all of your story, your wisdom with us. Actually, so you and Lauren were just named Startup Canada's Ontario Women Entrepreneurs of the Year. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like to receive that acknowledgement? We were, yeah. It's always it's always um, such an unexpected, um, but really nice feeling when we are recognized for different accomplishments we have it's it's always easy to go back and think that we're not growing fast enough or we're not doing enough and um, and to be uh, acknowledged and to take that moment to celebrate I think is is really important for all founders and was a really exciting day for us it's always nice to be able to look back and reflect and take it all in and thank you so much for your time today Mallory and for all the work that you do it's a pleasure to have had you on the show thanks so much for having me Thank you for joining us this week on the Thrive Podcast, where we help women entrepreneurs start and build thriving businesses. Thank you to the Startup Canada production team, BDC and Scotiabank for helping us elevate women entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to download the playbook Resources for Women Entrepreneurs with a comprehensive list of support for you and your business. And visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast, hosted by Rivers Corbett. Make sure to visit corespace, K-A-U-R dot space, 
to learn to better integrate work, wellness, and impact into your everyday life. Until next time, I'm Gomal Minhas. It's time to thrive.